How many of you in your place of employment have to go to, um, I don't know, extended training time? You ever do that, development in what you're doing? Well, I try to do that on a quasi-regular basis. Uh, What you're about to be a part of, where a guy stands in front of you and tries to share the Word of God and make it relevant to your life, um, is not always an easy job, especially in our culture today as things are changing. And so uh, I was reading this past week concerning preaching. Is preaching having an impact? Is preaching really changing people's lives? Is preaching changing our world? Or is preaching just placating what's already happening in our world? I'm very mindful of this. In fact, as I share with you each and every week, I'm always hopeful that you will draw closer in your relationship with God wherever you're at on that journey. Maybe you're someone who has had a relationship with God. You feel in your life for a long time there's still a place that you can draw closer to Him. Maybe you have not checked God out for a long time. And so just the idea of checking Him out or even trying to believe in Him would be a first kind of step. My desire in sharing in a moment like this is that you would leave closer in a relationship with God than when you came in. But it's not always easy. In fact, one of the things I was reading this week came from Tim Keller. He says this. Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's had a pretty powerful work there over the last number of years and uh, impacted people's lives that are even fairly well known that I can mention to you here today. Tim Keller says this, I have found we must guide our preaching between two dangers, pragmatism and moralism. If the radical and fresh Christian message is to be understandable to today's hearers. The first danger, he says, is pragmatism. And this is the point I want to draw us to in light of what we're going to be talking today about related to morality. He says this, I think of Joseph, one of our first and most enthusiastic new converts. Joe announced his new allegiance to Christ to his employees and decreed that henceforth the company's business practices would conform to Christian morality. At a Madison Avenue advertising agency, this was a courageous and potentially suicidal choice. No more lying to clients or to the public. No billing of hours not actually worked. No shrinking responsibility or blame shifting for failure. It was a recipe for disaster. To Joe's delight, and to the surprise of us watching this experiment and obedience, his business prospered. Clients who were ready to drop the firm for bigger agencies were delighted with the straight talk they got. One angry client who had been ready to sue was so flabbergasted by Joe's honest confession, confession of failure that he reversed his decision and gave him two new accounts. Revenues hit and then passed the $1 million mark. Joe began bringing employees to church, telling them, you know it's true because it works. But when romance with a married woman became a possibility, Joe abandoned his profession of faith. I know I'm doing something you think is wrong, he said, but I want to be happy, and that's that. Love is more important than your version of morality. 
Joe's early embracing of Christianity, Keller says, shows why pragmatism can tempt a preacher. It reaps quick returns. People are delighted by the practical help they're getting for saving their marriages, raising their family, overcoming bad habits, and fighting off midlife depression. They come back and bring their friends, but without the painstaking painstaking work of establishing a changed worldview, their commitment to Christianity will be only as deep as their commitment to any other helpful, quote-unquote, product. Allegiance is something that makes their lives easier to manage, should not be confused with genuine conversion, which has at its heart surrender to the creator God of the universe. Pragmatism. We've done pretty good with it in churches as the last couple decades. God is relevant to your life, and he is relevant. But a lot of times we fall into the consumerism trap of saying that God is merely there to help us out with our agenda and what we think might be best. God can begin in those kinds of places. Just as surely as we prayed over people today, the Holy Spirit is here. We can pray for his presence to work powerfully in your life to meet your very need. And I'm all on board for that. But what we find today oftentimes with quote-unquote conversions or people following God is that there's a pragmatic consumeristic mindset that says, I'm in it for what it brings to me. I'm not ultimately in it for truth. You know, Jesus told his disciples that they were to worship him uh, in one manner, in spirit and in truth. And so when we sing songs, when we dial into maybe what he's saying to us, we're, we're, we're worshiping God in spirit. But we have to move from worshiping just in spirit to also worship God in truth. And we need to make sure that we're moving towards Jesus in a manner that follows him, not because merely of what he does for us, but because of who he is. Big difference. Big difference. And this whole subject, as we take on, this is our third week in this series on life's biggest questions. We talked about question of origin, the question of meaning. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Today we look at the subject of morality. How do I know what's right and wrong? And this whole subject is really a challenging one in our culture because... To a large extent, we now live in a day in what's called postmodern world where we don't believe that there is any absolute morality that needs to be followed. And it's challenging. It's challenging. It used to be that Christianity had knocks a couple decades ago that uh, it's what you believe is not true. Now Christianity has knocks that we actually believe that there's something that is true. And you live in that world. I live in that world. But if we're going to worship God and move closer to him today, we have to worship him in spirit and truth, which means we have to engage our mind to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And sometimes when we have to look at the truth issues and love God with our mind or at least investigate God with our mind, it's not always easy. And I found it to be true. Last week I mentioned to you that I feel like I'm trying to reel in big fishes with each of these Sundays. And this was another one of those. Morality. How are we going to take on morality, you know, in 35 minutes? I don't know. But I do know this, that there is one 
who ultimately does know what's right and wrong because he's the one who created this world. And we have to begin with an understanding that there is a God who exists. And guess what? One of the best arguments for God's very existence is what's called the moral argument. Watch this as the staff from RZIM discusses the moral argument and how we begin to position the fact that God exists. The moral argument is one of the the most fascinating arguments, and and for me, um, I think it's the most uh, compelling, because we exist in a universe that has do's and don'ts. It has rules of behavior. There are things we are supposed to do and things that we are not supposed to do. Every human being has this sense that we are truly and really, in reality, obligated to avoid evil and to do good. Everybody has that sense of conscience. There's this real sense within every human being that there is an ought, there is a moral imperative that comes from somewhere. Um, And it is universal. And so if it's universal, it's not just culturally shaped, even though some morality, certainly we would acknowledge, has some cultural factors in it. But this universal ought, this universal imperative has to point to something bigger than humanity. Morality or moral properties have a very interesting feature. And this is they are um, they are um, normative. They tell us how we are supposed to behave, what we are supposed to do, and what we are not supposed to do. And if that is the case, if, if they are normative, if we have moral duties, not just moral values, things that we have to do, it really does cry out, in my view, for a moral law giver, if we do have moral duties. I can go back to my days before I was a Christian and I lived a fairly wild life. Now, The idea that I didn't want God to exist was a very key issue in my life because I didn't want something to impose upon me. But there was a sense at one level that laws as such were just the imposition of society. They were the imposition of parents or schools or authorities or the police. And only suckers believed that. And yet, when someone did something wrong to me, I was betrayed in a relationship very badly. And I was deeply angry. In fact, I wanted to go and beat the the people up that were involved in this because I wanted justice for the wrong that was done to me. So even in my non-believing state, that there was no God, there was no, no morality, there was a moral conscience badly orientated that I was following in some sense. Another society may disagree with those very laws. What we say goes for our society might not go for other societies. And a much more recent contemporary example is, of course, what we saw in the Holocaust. We saw the most educated nation at its time come to a point where it was systematically exterminating those who they thought were weak. Now, why? We have to ask the question why. If we jump straight to the idea that they were depraved monsters, we're missing out on key information here. The conclusion here was that if we are just meant to survive, if that's our whole purpose, then we ought to make ourselves as strong as a society as possible. So we're going to weed out the weak. It's our moral imperative to weed out the weak. There is no way we can conclude the Holocaust was wrong 
if we are cultural relativists, if we believe moral comes, morals come from our own culture or society. But we know, as we showed in the Nuremberg trials, we know what they did was wrong, and we're willing to say that. Let me position the moral law argument for you. This is probably one of the more helpful things, I believe, if somebody in your life, or maybe you're here today, leans towards an atheistic side. All right? Ravi Zacharias puts it this way. Number one is whenever people talk about evil, they actually assume there's such a thing as good have you ever had that question? Well, I don't believe in God. Look at all the suffering. Look at all the evil in the world. Well, you stop right there and you say, okay, time out. You're saying that there's something that's evil in the world. Well, if you're saying that there's something to evil, then you're also saying there's such a thing as good. All right? Next. When they assume there's such a thing as good, they assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. Now, that's a mouthful there, all right? But if you've got evil and you've got good, then who decides what's evil? Who decides what's good? There has to be a moral law, something you look to. You say, that's, that's in, that's out, all right? So if you're complaining about evil existing in the world, and I don't think there's any doubt about that, then you're saying that there's something that's good. Something inside of you says, that's not right. That's wrong. This would be right. But what is that that's in you that's doing that? There's some type of law or principle that you're operating by. And then he says, when they assume a moral law, they must assume a moral law giver. Now, for a lot of people that do not believe in God, uh, they would debate that third part. They would say, yes, there's good and there's evil, but it doesn't mean that that moral law within us is positioned by some eternal divine being. But that we get there by sort of consensus and our whole human understanding of what is best and what is right. Except there's a problem with that. Whose consensus is it that determines What's good? What's not good? Is it our consensus in America? Is it the consensus of people on the other side of the planet in some kind of country or some type of tribal people group that would say, no, we believe this is what's right? There's the belief that we've developed in society over the course of time to say, okay, morality is determined what's best for society, and uh, so it's according to... Uh, a consensus of people in a set period of time. But yet, if you push that a little bit, you would say, well, what do you think about slavery? Well, slavery's bad. That's bad. What do you think about torture? Oh, that's not good. That's bad, too. That's evil. Well, at one time, in the 1750s, if I took you back there, slavery and torture were okay. So was it okay because the people then had a consensus about it being okay? Or was there something inside of us, a moral law that says, no, that is not right? 
Now, we could pull out all kinds of examples today, whether it has to do uh, with racism, whether it has to do with um, uh, sex trafficking, you, you name it. You could have all kinds of examples and go, that's not right. But there's something inside of us that's driven to establishing what's right and what's wrong. Even criminals in prisons have sort of a code of conduct of what's not good and what is okay. Where does that come from? It comes from God. So if we're going to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, if we're going to investigate the understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God, not just on a pragmatic basis of what he does for us, we have to move into a heart of understanding that in the very heart of the one great God that we want to serve and love and follow is a God who is perfect and just. And he has established a sense of morality for the world in which he has created. And so I position to you, sort of my first point, if you will, is this. Morality is a universal and fixed system of moral conduct, which is acting rightly, doing what is good. We do not invent morality. We discover morality. It's key. We don't invent morality. We discover morality. Thus, the gentleman who was following a moral code, if you will, as a new believer, supposed new believer in his business, everything was going great. But when he decided in his heart that he wanted to seek out a married person, well, that's your morality. That's not mine. Well, wait a second. It wasn't the pastor's morality that was being pushed down somebody's throat. We are trying to align ourselves with a good and perfect, just, holy God. And what he establishes is what's right. Because God's sort of like a great parent. He is not establishing certain moralities of what's right and wrong to destroy your joy or put you in some type of straitjacket as a spiritual, uh, faith-filled person so you don't have any fun. As a parent, and as a parent, you give guidelines, what? To establish the freedom for your child to grow and to develop and to enjoy life to its fullest. God, who created all things, has established morality for the purpose not to destroy us or to keep us from something, but to liberate us to become everything God called us to be. And so you have to begin understanding that we do not invent morality today. We discover morality, the morality that God has. Now, you may have different kinds of side laws and things like this, maybe, you know, traffic laws or property taxes. I'm not talking those things. I'm talking those may be different different places for how things are voted in, and I understand that, and we try to do our best in, in being able to be a society moving forward. But it's the things that are deep inside is what we intrinsically say. There's rightness to that. There's wrongness to this. And don't change it. Guess what? If the moral law giver gives the moral law, then ultimately the great moral law is not up for us to pick and choose. Now, that may rub you the wrong way. It's rubbed me the wrong way at times in my life. Well, I don't think so, God. I've got better ideas. But I tell you what, the older I grow in my faith and my understanding of God, He is the perfect and just God who knows what's best. I need to align myself with the moral law that He gives. How do I know what's right and wrong? By looking to God and going to Him. And beginning to discover through his scripture what he teaches, beginning to pray, to listen to his spirit speaking in my life, and I move down a path that is honoring to him, is pragmatic to me, yes, but ultimately is an act of worship. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. 
couple of verses here on this, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. This is a reference to what's called general revelation. It's given to all people. All people, if they're seeking God, can understand his divine power, his eternal power and his divine nature. And part of that has to do with morality. Micah 6.8. I like this verse a lot. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Now, it's interesting. I, um, I try to navigate my world just like you try to navigate your world. But every now and then I'll catch little not just innuendos, straight-on kind of teaching and articulation of a naturalistic worldview that's trying to make good in this world without maybe a strong belief that there's an ultimate good God. All right? And I am tempted not to do this illustration, but I liked this this week, and by no means am I saying anything of a political nature with this. This is just me in observance. As you know, we have uh, five candidates running for President of the United States. One of those is a man I've not given much attention to, but I've been taken back by the number of people who have. His name is Bernie Sanders. It was said of this in an article in CNN, religion editor, uh, this week. The man said, if you listen closely, Sanders has said many times that he is proud to be Jewish. And he is but has rarely, if ever, acknowledged Judaism as his religion. Sanders' uh, Sanders' lack of religious orthodoxy sometimes peeks out in campaign events, such as a town hall hosted by Fox News in March, when he argued that health care is a human right. Fox's Brett Baer said this. He interrupted and said, but where does that right come from? That kind of question turns most people angling for the White House into amateur theologians. Even the deist Thomas Jefferson argued that our most important rights come from a creator. But Sanders wouldn't take the bait. He said, being a human being is the source of our rights, he said. Motioning to the woman in the audience, Sanders continued, I believe that if she is poor and you are rich, she is entitled to the same quality health care you have because she is a human being. This article says it was an answer that could be sung from the rafters in a humanist hymnal. And American nons, especially millennials, are flocking to Sanders' moral but not religious message. According to Exapol, Sanders' support has come largely from voters under 45 and people who rarely, if ever, attend worship services. Now, I don't bring that up to make any political statement. I bring it up to say this. You have to look inside the mindsets, the worldviews, of all people, including those who run for presidential office. You can look inside of mine. We have certain beliefs, but where do we base those beliefs upon? It's fully valid to say that, you know, or have the belief that this person is to have health care. But when you say it's a human right, then you have to come and say, well, who gives that human right? Who's... Human right was. It hasn't been human rights for, you know, since the founding of this world to have a a right to health care, right? But 
the argument then is taken back to the sense of, well, they're human. But if you're going to go there, then why are humans any different than anyone else? Right? Maybe my dog should have health care provided for him. Now, I believe that humans are not the same as animals. And there are human rights. But those human rights are based in an understanding of an eternal God. Some of you remember who uh, Adolf Eichmann was. Adolf Eichmann was uh, one of the people that was responsible for the gassing of tens of thousands of Jews in World War II. And uh, after the war, he escaped. And the Israeli CIA, what's it called there, Mike? Mossad. Tracked him down. And... In 1960, the guy who was ahead of tracking him down, I believe his um, name was Peter Malik. And Peter Malik found him in Argentina. This guy had killed tens of thousands of people. Now, Peter was pretty broken what happened because he himself, as a Jew, he lost several family members in the Holocaust. And two that were very dear to him was his sister and his sister's son, his nephew, who was also named Peter, a six-year-old boy. He was killed. But in Argentina, as uh, this Peter Malik staked out Adolf Eichmann to try to arrest him, he began to observe over the course of many days and weeks that Adolf Eichmann would come home from work. He would walk into a house. And there would be this special moment where the door was opened and a six-year-old boy would raise his arms and Adolf Eichmann and him would have a loving embrace. Now, it was striking to this agent because he thought of the big, bad Adolf Eichmann. But here he was, just a normal human being, loving on a little boy. Well, the moment came for them to uh, do the arrest, and they were doing it when he got off the bus. He had him turn around, and he rested there. They whisked him away in a car, and the end of that story is that Adolf Eichmann was put on trial, and he was ultimately killed for his responsibilities of what he did in the Holocaust. But Peter, on one of his trips, when he had Eichmann there, he broke the silence He had a couple questions for him, and one of his questions had to do with that little boy. Come to find out that that little boy embracing his arms around Eichmann was his own son. And so Peter asked Eichmann, he says, can you tell me? I have, I had a nephew that was six years old, blonde hair, blue eyes, just like your son. Can you tell me? Why? My son was killed. My nephew was killed. And Eichmann looked at him, fairly stone cold, and he says, it was simple. Your son was a Jew. To which Peter Malik just walked away in silence and broke down in uncontrollable sobs and was impacted long term until... Thirty years later, he gave articulation of that story. 
A man who killed tens of thousands of people. And, you know, he had his own son. What's the difference between your son and the nephew I lost? They were both six-year-old boys in stone-cold face. Simple. Your son was a Jew. Now, it'd be dismissive, and it's like mentioned in the video. It'd be dismissive to say, well, Germany was, you know, they're just atrocious people. But no, they were highly intelligent people, and they got to a place where they thought that the extermination of a certain group of people would be for the betterment of society. And so millions of Jews were killed. How do you get to that place? You get to that place when you do not believe there is an ultimate absolute morality that comes from a moral law, from a moral law giver who is just and good of all people that he's created. And you can take the scenario over and over again. And some people say, well, that's an extreme kind of thing. I don't know where our society is not as bad. Friends, if we do not give credence to the reality that there is a morality that comes from a great God, then we too can fall into the same traps one after another. Human rights do not come because we're human. Human rights come because we are made in the image of God. And as being made in the image of God, we have inalienable rights, as our Constitution says, to be able to pursue life, liberty, and happiness because we were created in His image. We live in a culture of relativism, and it's growing faster and faster all the time. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Well, I don't, don't, don't push your stuff on me. Well, I don't want to push anything on anybody. But I do want to articulate clearly that the question, the big life question, how do we know between what's right and wrong? There is an answer to that. It's not relative. And the answer is found in a true God who's made us in his image. He has shown us, shown you, O mortal, I like that word, what is good, what is good. Second, Jesus is not only the perfect example of morality, but also the solution to our moral dilemma. We move ourselves then to Jesus and understand that with Jesus, he is often upheld that there is a great moral person. But we need to understand this, that he is not just the example of morality. He is the one who comes to bring a solution to our moral dilemma. How many of you in here identify with the words of Paul in Romans 7? Let me read this for you as it relates to morality, doing right. New Living Translation says this, Romans 7, 21. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, inevitably, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. That power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. The Apostle Paul's talking about, okay, there is this moral law. But you know what? There's something happening inside of me that I don't want to obey that moral law. I sin. I falter. I fail. And so we live in this dichotomized life, wrestling and struggling to do good. To do good. Paul would say, I got you. I've been there. Where do we go to from there? 
It says this in Ephesians 2, 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus is not just a great example of someone who sinned a mor- I mean, lived a sinless life, a moral life. He is the solution to the moral dilemma by which we find ourselves as broken, fallen human beings. We can't live out what God tells us to do. But Jesus comes, and it's through him and his work, his finished sacrificial work on the cross and the power of the resurrection that breaks the stranglehold of sin, the bent in us that says, I don't want to go there. And he comes with his very life to begin living in us and through us. It is not by works that you are saved or I am saved. It was because of his grace, his work on the cross and our faith in that work. So, when you begin discussing the subject of morality, how do we know what's right and wrong? We would be left in a very miserable, miserable place if Jesus was just a good example. You take Islam. Islam, what does it have to do with it? What does it say about evil? Well, you just got to put up with it. Allah is Allah. And it's just a part of life. Hinduism Hinduism, you're caught on a, uh, a cycle of karma. And so what evils in your life is because of something that happened in your prior life. And so uh, hopefully try a little bit better and your next time around you'll be doing better. Buddhism, Buddhism says that evil is an illusion. Atheism says that, well, uh, evil exists because of, yeah, just the way societies and decisions are made, but there is no ultimate evil. Christianity is the only religious worldview that deals with the problem of the evil. And it defines it. It says there is evil and it's in the heart of mankind because sin came into the world. But God doesn't sit in judgment and say, get your act together. He became flesh, lived among us. He took upon himself our sin. He broke the power of sin at the cross and the power of the resurrection. And he has become the substitutionary means by which we can be freed. That is good news. That is news that your friends need. Your enemies even need it. There is hope. In the Christian worldview, because in the Christian worldview, Jesus came not only to say, hey, look at me, live like I am. He came to do something about it, and he took upon himself the sins of the world. That is good news. He is the solution to our moral dilemma. This country, any nation, will never find their way through the immoral predicaments that they are in, or even the amoral predicaments they are in, until they come to believe 
that there is a good moral being who came so that we could be made right. Two more thoughts just simply. This next thought comes um, from uh, Andy Stanley. And it says this. Grace does not dumb down sin to make it more palatable. Grace acknowledges the full implication of sin and yet does not condemn. The reason I put this up here is because I find it true in our Christian society that we want to minimize what we call sin today. And we say, well, maybe that's not a sin. Well, investigate it. Seek out the heart of God. Because here's the reality. We are dismissing sin today. And when we do that, we are also dismissing the ability for people to have grace. Grace is only possible because there is brokenness and sin. Grace does not dumb down sin and say, oh, that's not sin. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's okay. Grace acknowledges the full implication of sin. That is sin. And yet, it does not condemn. The verse I have for this is found in um, Romans 1, 8, verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Paul did mince words. There is a power of sin that leads to death. But thanks be to God, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It leads me to this final thought, and I want to leave this with you. I think it's probably one of the more powerful things as I worked through it this last week. Christian morality is a response to God's grace, not a means to attain God's grace. You see what it's saying? Christian morality is not... Is a, not, is a response to God's grace, not a means to attain God's grace. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Religion is when you're trying to live a right life without the power of God. The Christian faith is the power of God enabling you to live the right kind of life. Don't get them switched. If you get them switched, your faith will become a burden to you and you will chuck it. You will. But if you start to understand that you live out a moral life because of your great love for God and the grace that's been shown you in Jesus Christ, it will compel you into a righteous lifestyle. Because the right just one lives within you. Jesus draws people into relationship. And because of that relationship, then, people choose to love and follow him. If you came to be a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe pragmatically to get you out of whatever situation you were in, 
Maybe because you felt guilty and you need to stack up a bunch of good things, so you decided to pray some prayers, come to church, and try to look like you know a Christian. It's not going to take you where you need to go. You need to first come to relationship with Jesus, and out of that love relationship, you will decide and you will be able to live for him. Oh, you'll stumble and fall here and there, just like any young child does. But you will live for him a righteous life. We have a morality, not as a means to attaining God's grace and favor in his sight to get into heaven. We have a moral life because of our immense love for him. Do you remember the story of Jesus with the woman who was caught in adultery? Jesus is teaching. He's got all the religious people around him. They bring in a woman who's been caught in adultery. And they say to him, what are you going to do with this woman? She was caught in adultery. It says that you're supposed to stone her to death. Throw rocks at her, kill her. Jesus starts writing in the sand. Doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote in the sand. I think he probably started writing the sins of other people. He probably started writing the names of other people. And Jesus said, whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. And one by one, beginning with the older people, they started to exit until this woman caught in adultery was the only person standing there. And he looked at her and he says, where are those who condemn you? And she says, there is no one. And then Jesus says this in John 8:11. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life. Of sin. Where does the moral command come? On the backside of him drawing her to himself. It is only out of a relationship, a love relationship with the great God through his son Jesus Christ that we are able to do what's good and not what's wrong. Make sure you understand. Morality is a response to God's grace. It's not a means to attain God's grace. I'm going to have us close. The band's going to come. We're going to sing a song about being able to be freed as a slave to fear, but also it means a slave to sin. And I just want to encourage us that if you are here this morning and you're weary and burdened down with guilt because you have sinned and you have broken God's moral code, I want you to know there is no condemnation here in this room. And there is no condemnation with Jesus Christ. He looks at you. He draws you to himself. And he forgives you if you'll come to him. And that forgiveness is full and complete. He lets go of it. And as he draws you to himself, as he picks you up and he embraces you in his love, he then sends you out and he says, go and sin no more. Team, come and let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us this hour to be able to readily identify our need to pursue morality, but to pursue it not as a means, but to pursue it as a response to your grace. We live in a world, Lord, that has gone adrift. We are a part of that world. We contribute to that world. For we are broken people ourselves. But, Lord, we thank you that there is hope. 
not in the works that we do, but in the work that you did. May we receive you by full faith, even for the sins that we need to seek your forgiveness of this very hour. And may we bask in your grace and your love. And Lord, may we go from that place to live for you, to glorify you. For you are a loving Heavenly Father who desires only what is best. In your name we pray. Amen.